Welcome to the Founders Podcast. Whose bright idea was this anyway? I'm Andrew Peyton Smith, founder and CEO of Jizoodle. And welcome to episode 13 of the Founders Podcast, Whose Bright Idea Was This Anyway? And we're right in the middle of the COVID-19 outbreak, but we've got an absolutely wonderful guest for you today. In an area I think a lot of founders are going to find uh, there are many black holes in their knowledge. Um, So I'd like to welcome our very special guest, um, Chaz Deer. Um, Chaz is the the founder of Scope Legal. Um, His specialist legal dealmaker And he specializes in private company mergers and acquisitions, acting for both buyers and sellers, Uh, private equity acting for investors as investors and for investee companies. His specialities include also capital raising, which is music to every founder's ears, and and specializes in technology companies as well as general commercial and corporate law. Chaz does deals very, very well. He is an expert negotiator, as well as having lots of patience and tenacity. And he'll work hard to ensure the best outcomes for his clients. Chaz started his career in London before moving to Sydney and is now a resident of the beautiful Central Coast. Welcome, Chaz, to the Founders Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. That was a very, uh, a very kind and very detailed uh, introduction. <laughs> I feel, uh, feel like I'm blushing now. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. So, Chaz, just tell us a little bit more about um, your history and, um, and your love of deal-making. It's actually, um, it's strange looking back now. When I left um, university, having you know, done a law degree, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I was um, pretty set on, on going and becoming a family lawyer. Yeah. Um, you know, wanting to work with people and help people and, and so on. And um, when I started out working for my first firm in London, um, I ended up kind of doing a, a little stint in the corporate commercial team. And it was just at the time that this, this thing called the dot-com boom sort of took off and yep. you can imagine a kind of old established London law firm um, with no great uh, huge technology focus until that point suddenly we had all these clients who were setting up websites and, and online businesses and so on and as a kid I'd always you know loved technology I had my Sinclair ZX Spectrum and my VIC-20 <laughs> and you know all this yeah, stuff. I had my first um, computer was a VIC-20 as well. Oh there you go and uh, classic and um, and so I kind of suddenly found myself in this whole different area that kind of almost didn't exist a few years previously, and just took to it like like, like a duck to water. And um, and suddenly, you know, family was kind of out of the picture, and, and corporate and commercial was where I was and where I've stayed. And that that was, um, gosh, that was over twenty years ago, um, mm. and uh, haven't haven't really looked back. Um, so that's kind of where where I got to um, uh, in terms of working in in this particular area. Yeah. Okay. And um, and you've also recently, well, not so recently, um, relocated to the Central Coast. Tell us why why the Central Coast, an area close to my heart. Obviously, what what, what do you love about the Central Coast? <laughs> well, so, so my wife is um, from Sydney, and we met in London, and as so many um, sort of English Australian couples do, and we lived in London for, for, mm. for a few years and, and got married, and then, but the plan was always, I think, to come out to Australia. I'm not. I, been out here you know, even before I'd met my wife and kind of and, and, and several times afterwards and um, and so we moved to Sydney in 2011 um, and then at that point our, our daughter our eldest was was only a couple of years old and yeah. so we started planning ahead to schools and things and um, and really we kind of kicked around Sydney for a few years and weren't really sure where we wanted to, to lay our roots and then one day came up to the central coast just for a drive and mm. I was actually I can remember it so well I, I was we were walking along the beach at Avoca Beach from the sort of surf tower um, to the surf club. Yeah. And, um, you know, the sun was shining, lovely, lovely clear day, lots of trees and, and, and blue, blue sky and sand and everything. And I sort of said to my wife, look, you know, as a kid growing up in the UK in Birmingham, you know, getting my knowledge of Australia through Home and Away and Neighbours, this is yeah. what I thought living in Australia would be, not living in Sydney, especially. Yeah. And, um, you know, why don't we move here? Kind of half as a joke. Um, and then three months later, we made the move. Um, and that was in 2014 and moved to a lovely, beautiful Avoca. And, um, mm. you know, my daughter started the local school and, and since, and so has my son. And, 
yeah, we're absolutely happy. Love it here. You know, just about to, well, we're in the middle of rebuilding our house. So um, not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> and yeah, you know, it's, um, I, I kind of, I was actually chatting to a lawyer friend in Sydney yesterday and he lives in, in Main Cove and mm. I was, you know, in, people don't know, that's pretty central Sydney. Yeah. Again, you know, he's kind of where I was a few years ago and I said to him, well, look, you know, don't be afraid to look outside of, of Sydney. And especially, I think, with, with the virus and what's happening with people working from home now, mm. suddenly, if you don't need to be in a, an office, you know, commuting into a place you can work from home, yeah. then, you know, then, then suddenly you don't need to be within, you know, 5K of the, of the Sydney CBD or 10K. You can be two hours away, which is what Avoca is, and, and still be able to, to manage everything properly. I guess another thing I'd say is, is in terms of my my business, if you like, you know, we do, we're a bit, a bit unusual because of scope, we're doing the kind of work that you get done in a big Sydney law firm in, in the mm. CBD, but we're actually this little pro, you know, provincial practice um, with, you know, and, and lots of local law firms around here are kind of, you know, they're just your normal sort of family lawyers or, or, yeah. or conveyances or property lawyers, you know, and um, and it, it doesn't matter that we're, we're you know, like I said, you know, a couple of hours out of Sydney, um, mm. the, the technology allows us to do that. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that I know when I first moved to the Central Coast from Sydney, that was a, a probably I think it was about 2011. One of the, the key reactions I got from everybody when I said I was moving to the Central Coast was, "Ah, why are you doing that?" And um, and and that's been fairly constant. I think one of the if there is an upside to to what's happening at the moment is that and people working from home is I think that stigma of living away from the uh, the CBD areas is is going to be removed possibly forever. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I think it was changing. You know, even prior yeah. to this, uh, I've got a client, a, a big client in Sydney, and you know, but a lot of their staff work from home. And I remember having having a call, you know, probably about a year ago, and there were three people on the call. I was, you know, from our home in you know in Avoca. Um, one of the guys from the client was at his home in Bondi, mm. and a third person was was on the call from Byron. You know, it's kind of <laughs> we're all three, oh, wow. three amazing beachside suburbs. You know, going through you know this this big you know bit, bit of legal mm. work. So um, it's absolutely changing, and and uh, yeah, that process I can only see accelerating now. Yeah, absolutely. Right, let's get into a couple of the um, the juicy areas that we wanted to talk about today. And first area is, and say it's it's an area that I think every founder uh, under the sun uh, wants to know more about. And there's there's plenty of um, uh, black holes of knowledge around, and that's capital raising. And it's an area that causes many founders lots of sleepless nights. Um, what what tips and tricks and advice can you give to founders on ensuring they're ready for capital raising activities? Look, that's a good question. I think um, you know, being ready, what you want to do is well, I guess put yourself into into an investor's shoes. Mm. You know, they want to be, you know, they're presented with an opportunity. They've received a, a pitch deck, and it's all sounds amazing, and you know, lots of hockey stick, hockey stick graphs and so on, and, yeah. and everything. And um, yeah, so you know. If you're getting someone to you know, have a conversation with you, then they're clearly already interested. So you want to then, at that point, almost make the process as seamless, as pain-free, as hassle-free as you can for them. Mm. And one of the big areas that can cause a lot of a lot of strife is just if you haven't got your documentation and you're kind of yeah. you know, the, the basics in order. Um, you know, you've got to you know, in, in almost every case, your founder, sorry, your, your investors are going to do their due diligence. Yeah, so they're going to want to know exactly what it is that they're investing into so they'll, they'll say to you well okay now can, can you you know show us your cap table show us your um shareholders given if you have one show me your you know especially for technology companies ip due diligence is a big one mm. so i want to know well, what ip do you own if it's been developed you know by someone other than the founder or you know where are the contracts you know where's where's the sort of the ip assignment can yeah. we trace the chain of ownership of that ip this is all really really vital to what it is because again if you've got you know you may have the best idea in the world and an investor chomping at the bit but if mm. you know your code was developed by some you know mate who was a programmer or someone you know overseas and you haven't got that written contract in place that's a, you know that's a big hurdle that will need to be fixed mm. and that's not that it can't be fixed it can be fixed but it's just putting another a little roadblock in yeah. the way of the of the investor you know, ditto you know if you've got you know customers that are you know, sort of signed up, but um, I, mean, I mean you know simple things like 
you do have customers, you've got paying customers, um, and they're already up and running, but actually they haven't formally signed the T's and C's or their subscription yeah. agreement or contract or whatever it is. Again, these are, you know, having a, a you know, an, a scanned copy of the contract, with, you know, it's dated with both signatures, that kind of thing. It's just, a, it's just such an easy thing to do mm-hmm. and not having, it does just, you know, so it's, it's a little roadblock. And then the more of these little things you have, the more kind of, you know, it's just, it's that cumulative effect of, well, there's another little roadblock here and another little pebble in the, yeah. in the way there and they all start to build up. So okay. being organized, I think, is, is an absolutely you know, key thing to do. And, and you know, not also, you know, let's not forget also, it's just great practice for you running your business. Mm. You know, it's, I mean, these are things that really we should all be doing um, just from a general kind of corporate governance compliance yeah. point of view. Yeah, it's all about cutting the risk, if you like, from an investor's point of view. So you want it, you want it from, um, when, I guess when um, people are looking to invest into companies, they're saying, right, we've got this big risk profile that's sitting right in front of us. Now, how much of that risk can we actually satisfy ourselves is not so much risk. Therefore, have we got signed contra- sales contracts? Have we got um, the IP assignment in place, et cetera? And that just takes all the, the each little chunk of risk um, it reduces on, on the investor's behalf. Yeah, because the other thing is that, um, I mean, certainly with bigger investments, um, your investor may engage some accountants or, or some lawyers to do financial mm. you know, or, or tax or legal DD. Now, then you have this funny situation where you've got someone, I'll talk about the legal DD side of things. So, you, so yeah. this other law firm acting for the investor, crawling over everything to try and find problems. Mm. And from the law firm's point of view, you know, if, if they see a problem and they don't, if you like, you know, make very clear to the investor just how big it is, then yeah. potentially they themselves could be sued later on for not identifying the problems. Mm-hmm. So you have this weird thing where, you know, you've got someone crawling over everything, finding you know, little issues and possibly making them out, you know, not intentionally, but, you know, sort of not, you know, inadvertently making them out much bigger than they are. Yeah. Um, and then you've got to, you know, and then the investor gets the report and saying, "Oh my goodness, the sky's falling in." Mm. You know, uh, there are all these issues, and you know, oh my god, you know, sort of, you haven't got this, you know, this particular signed contract, or this client could walk away, or you know, and they will say be, be painted a very, very grim picture, yeah, um, which you then need to resolve. Now, again, in my experience, I would say that, but I'd say in twenty years, I'd maybe two deals fall over at the DD stage where something came up that okay. was just such a big issue that, you know, I mean, no, normally what happens is, you know, these issues come up and either you, know, you fix them or the investor may, you know, sort of you know, use them to hammer you on valuation mm. uh, and say, look, actually, you know, this is a, just, it's, it's part, part of the game. Um, but the big one that fell over was actually, it was around IP. This yeah. is a company that had, a lot of um, third-party generated IP. Mm. And I think inadvertently they thought that they had more rights to the IP than they actually did. And it yeah. was such a part of the kind of, if you like, the back catalogue of this, this business. You know. And you know, there was a big risk for the investor that on day one they could suddenly find, word gets out that the company's got, suddenly got cash behind it, so it's worth mm. suing. Um, and people were like, hold on a minute, you know, they're using my IP and they, they're not meant to. Yeah. So the safe thing would be to not use the IP. And then that suddenly meant the business on its, of itself was that much less valuable. So uh, of course. that unfortunately, unfortunately fell over. Yeah, absolutely. That, that actually quite surprised me that only two in, in, in 20 years have fallen down during the due, due diligence stage. So that says a lot for um, essentially both teams working so closely together. To, to make these things happen. I think that's right. I think, um, you know, because often once you've got somebody at the stage where they've, they've signed a term sheet, mm. then, I mean, really, it's kind of, you know, again, in my view, the deal is kind of, there's a deal that's going to happen unless there's something, you yeah. know, unless a 9-11 or a COVID type, you know, sort of total third party or yeah. sort of blind signs and the Thunderbolt com- comes out and strikes everyone. I mean, on the on the M and A side, you know, again, on you know, just to give a few examples, they had a few deals fall over like that, and that's mm. the, the worst one we had there. Was um, I was working on a transaction over 
uh, gosh, it's probably was a couple of months of trying to get this deal done. Yeah. It was a sale of a big business that had lots of retail outlets. And the, we were acting for the seller. The buyer was um, bank financed. Mm. So they were going to you know, borrow X, you know, tens of millions of, of pounds and yeah. do this deal. And, you know, the, um, the way that those kinds of deals work is that the bank will tell you yes or no whether they're going to lend you the money, but they're not committed to anything. And ultimately, they don't need to be a definitive answer pretty much half a day before you went to sign the documents because they want to see everything in final form and so on. And we, we literally were at almost at the, I think it was the day before signing, everything ready to kind of shift 50 leases across from one yeah. place to another, sort of however many hundreds of employees, all this kind of stuff was ready to go. And then the bank just changed their mind and said, actually, you know, we looked at it again, the, the, the definitive you know, credit committee um, answer was you know, we can't do it and you know, the buyer couldn't do anything about it they couldn't finance it and we as a seller well you know <laughs> what can you do where, where do you go well that's right exactly you know so yeah. that was that was I mean I felt really bad for the for the for the buyer because they were this, this would have been a transformational deal for their business yeah um, and you kind of you do sort of wonder well what was the, what were their their um, finance brokers doing in this they should have been you know it shouldn't oh, be coming up that that late in the day. Yeah, um, but you know that, it happens. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's, there's a lot of talk about having uh, your data room ready, and, and you've given some great reasons why. How can because this is an area I know that really causes a lot of founders some massive headaches in terms of getting your data room ready and all the paperwork and uh, all of the proof points. How can companies such as Scope Legal help uh, in this area? What I encourage clients to do is say, look, almost. You almost want your own advisor to do a due diligence exercise first mm. before the other side get you know let loose on you to to crawl over everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, get, get get your own lawyers to do it. So we we would go in and say, okay, right, let's now see. You know, can you provide us with these contracts and you know get them uploaded into into a yeah you know, a Dropbox or a, or a, you know whatever the cloud system they want to use, and just just really do the same exercise. And then look at what issues are there. Yeah. Then you perform a bit of a risk analysis. They will okay. This is either you know it's it's a easy to fix now, or it's a easy to fix later on. You know, or it's a you know sort of it's a well, let's just see how it goes. And if the buyer's got any any concerns about it, you know, so it's really just again doing that exercise first, and then and hopefully if the client's already been organised and has been you know sort of getting contracts signed and it's got all their employment contracts in place and the lease and all, all these things, then it's, mm. it's, it's um, you know, actually not the headache that everyone thinks it is. And, and the good thing also is really once you've got that set up, set up once, there's no reason why you then just run it on, you know, post the deal. Mm. Actually, it's good practice to just have a, a central repository for every time you sign a customer contract yeah. or you do a contract amendment or a renewal, you know, or, and, and, and actually having your, your sales team know well. Okay, it's not just about getting that quote out and then said, you know, start providing the service. It's actually well. Let's we need to have as part of our internal processes that that signed contract on both both signatures and, and dated mm. you know, here and and yeah, ready to to, to um, be, you know readily accessible if, if we need it. Not just for, for DD, but you know for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, um, if, if there's a the worst thing is when you know you've got a long-standing client and something something goes wrong, and then you're trying to find the contract and there's nothing there. <laughs> just, I mean, again, this is you know great for lawyers because it gives them a lot more work to do. But um, yeah, it's, it's you know kind of easily avoidable issue if you like. Absolutely, and I'm guessing for for early stage founders, um, sales contracts may or may not be um, the important thing. There'll be other areas such as IP, which are the things that that come into come absolutely. into place. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. IP, and also just you know. Okay. Yeah, depending on on where things are, you know, lots of companies may initially get set up and then start handing out chairs to people and mm-hmm. then just, well, look, you know, what is your cap table? What's it look like? Yeah, and also have you actually follow the right procedures in in even at the friends and family stage? Mm-hmm. Um, I um, <laughs> I worked on a a very very big transaction. This is right at the start of my career. Yeah, and was a um, this company was going to float on the stock exchange and basically what t- it turned out that what had happened was right in the very very early days the founders had just kind of given out a bunch of shares to friends and family almost yeah. nearly they had like kind of i don't know 30 people 
and, and and they'd all been giving it out, you know, some person on day one, some person on day 13, some person on day whatever, you know, it's like over a, a not particularly long period of time, but just on different day. And it was just a nightmare because technically the, the, you know, the, the company constitution had this sort of concept of preemption rights, which is where if you're going to offer shares out, you offer them to the existing founders, the existing shareholders mm-hmm. first. Yeah. So none of that had ever been done on, on this like what turned out to be about six rounds of shares. Oh, so, wow! So um, you know, and it's just a total innocent mistake because they just kind of they were doing it all on the cheap, and and I think mm. the company at the time was just another mate who was just you know kind of dabbled a bit in this kind of stuff, but certainly not a lawyer. And we ended up, I, I remember it like yesterday. I remember you know being in the, in, the, in the chambers of a a QC barrister. Mm. Um, and we had the lawyers for the company, which was my firm, so, so a partner, myself was the, the kind of junior lawyer there. And yeah. Then the, um, the kind of the corporate finance team and their lawyers, and then the accountants and their lawyers, <laughs> and just trying to work out what to do. And then at the end, you know, and just how it kind of did this really lengthy admin process of going through and, and um, getting waivers of, uh, you know, and kind of deeds of consent for the, the um, the fact that preemption rights hadn't been properly applied, and um, I mean, and look, I think that that was easily, you know, probably six figures the company spent just yeah. to fix that. Oh my word! And it was, you know, again, oh, it was just you know, but it had to be done because again, you know, sort of this is this goes to the heart of what this company was. If you don't know, hmm. yeah, you know, um, you know, whether it's a, it was an IPO or whether it was a a um, you know, someone buying the company, yeah, you don't suddenly, you know, a former shareholder or a company would come out and say, actually, I should have been offered, you know, I've got X percent, so I should have had Y percent. Yeah. I wasn't given the opportunity. So, um, yeah, that was a real example to me early on in my career. Look, you know, you've got to get the, the little things right and, and, um, and nip things in the bud because they can have a habit of mushrooming out of control. And that's so that yeah. just looking around you know, and seeing... I, 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 was trying to, I think I was trying to work out what was the combined hourly rate of all the people in this room, and it was oh. a, a big number. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be, and, and, and I'm just internalising a big sigh of relief because that's one of the things that we've been really stringent on with Jazoodle when we've been um, uh, doing additional friends and family raise and so forth is is get those get the minute that the the, uh, the increase in capital can happen, and then get the offer out to the uh, existing shareholders to. So thank you for that. That's actually put my, put my mind at rest, actually, on there because I didn't start worrying about that for a moment. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Um, but it is, I mean, yeah, these, again, these are all little, little things that can just have, you know, it's that sort of, at the time, no one would have thought that would have been that big. Yeah. But just, just the way it turned out, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And all, and all part of the issue was, I think, this company was moving so quickly mm. in its early days yeah. um, that, um, again, they were, they almost, you know, my firm weren't involved at that say I think they didn't have lawyers at that point. Yeah, you know, and or they were just moving so quickly that they just didn't have time to get the advice and just mm. went ahead and did it. Yeah. Um, there you go. It cost them dearly <laughs> in the end. Oh, dear. I want to talk about um deal structuring now and um, and what appears to be uh, another weird magic that legal teams and accountants undertake. Um how do you approach a new client? So, so for instance, a client says, well, I'm looking to, to sell my business or to, or to buy the, a particular business. How do you approach the client and understand how the deal should be structured? Because there's many different ways of structuring I mean, the deal. I mean, yes and no. Um, look, ultimately, a lot of this comes down to the tax side of things and, um, and how what the implications will be based on different kinds of deal structure. So yeah. in sort of M&A world, we're talking really about, are you buying a company or are you buying the underlying business from the company? Mm. And the two things have different tax treatments. Um, but there are other issues. So for example, if, if you're a tech company and you've got um, 500 customers, um, mm-hmm. now if you were to, if I was was to want to buy the business from from you, as opposed to buying, let's say, you know, Jazoodle itself, yeah. Yeah. Um, then, Buying the business basically means I've got to buy every single asset um, that comprises that business. Mm. Uh, if you've got 500 customers, that means and 500 contracts, that means that you know each one of those contracts needs to be be 
you know, somehow yeah. transforms it all to me. Yeah. Um, and in lots of cases, um, you know, that kind of thing needs actually the, the approval of the customer. Mm. You know, your customer will may have a contract with you saying, you know, sort of, you know, contracting with you and, and we're not going to, um, yeah, it can't be transferred without our approval because mm. that's, you know, they, they contracted with you, not with me. Yeah. Um, so that kind of scenario, it makes no sense to do a business sale mm-hmm. because just of the, of the of the admin hassle and also the hassle that you know that, that um, yeah you go to 500 customers and um, a percentage of them may say actually you know what we've got we had this contract we're going to cancel it yeah yeah, yeah. so there's always that kind of risk there so um, so a a company sale makes much more sense yeah that sort of scenario um, so that's those are the two sort of big big um, drivers for what kind of deals that you do. But often, you know, it's really a, a, a question of sitting down with the client, with their accountants, and just sort of working through some of these issues. And then, and then you know, it's, it's very much a collaborative effort as to what's, what's the best approach. Um, albeit, uh, yeah, I think the, the accountants take a bit more of a lead. Yeah. Okay. And there's things like, I mean, I've come across um, all sorts of wonderful earn-out periods and... Um, wonderful ways of ensuring that business is protected and post-sale and so forth. Absolutely. I mean, again, you know, sort of, you know a sale can be anything from I sell to you and it's the one-off cash payment and, and I'm done and I walk away all the way to, you know, I'm selling to you and I get a, you know, a bit of cash today um, and then, you know, yeah, the, the rest mm. of the payment is, is paid out over, over a period of time. And obviously, you know, that kind of structure, then, as you say, gives rise to a whole bunch of new risks and considerations, you know, myself as a seller, I may want some security. Mm. Yeah. Actually, um, you know, if you're um, setting a, a new shell company to buy my company, then yeah. your buyer is actually itself hasn't got many assets. So you think about what, well, you know, parent company guarantees or money interest and things like that. And then just, you know, one of the, one of the big classic situations with a, with a sort of earn-out deferred consideration scenario is all around, well, yeah, if I'm if I'm selling to you and you're going to pay me based on the future performance of the business, mm. well, I've got no control over that future performance. Yeah, and so you know, sort of, how do I, you know, what can I do to protect myself from you, you know, running the business into the ground, um, mm-hmm. or you know, diverting sort of bits of the business into another entity. Mm. You know, if my based on profitability of the company going forward. And you've just chucked all the profitable contracts into some other company. Then suddenly, yeah. you know, that's artificially you know, yeah, reducing the amount that's going to come across to me. Of so course. there's all there's always an argument um, to be had on on that particular issue. And then, you know, but then the flip side is always because I've been on both sides of the argument. The buyer will say, "Well, look, yeah, I'm I'm not I can't guarantee you these results because who knows what's going to happen in the future." Yeah. Then think about. Uh, where we, how we are now, you know, I, I could have bought a business in January um, based on turnover, you know, for the next year, and then suddenly COVID hits and we've got a shutdown, and and you know, that's yeah, that wasn't my fault, you know, <laughs> that's right. So uh, I just want to show you that wasn't my fault. So, um, so uh, uh, you know, then what happens? So it's all really, yeah. I mean, it's about risk, understanding risk and risk allocation, mm. um, and just aware of how how these things work. Um, yeah. And um, and certainly, I mean, one thing that I'd like to maybe just touch on is also is from a seller's point of view, um, especially when you're a founder and you set mm. up this, built to you know raise this company up from from nothing to to the point where it can be sold to a third party, um, you know, and you've got staff and, and you've got you know, long-standing customers, um, the actual sort of just selling it can be a really emotionally taxing thing to do. Yeah. The one thing I think that people don't really quite appreciate, um, you know, especially, you know, the, the process itself, the process of, of, of doing a deal is quite, quite involved. You know, you're trying to run your business and at the same time, you're actually you know, going to be having meetings with accountants and lawyers yeah. and, and, and the buyer and, and their team as well. And, you know, and in many cases you're trying to, you know, not spook the staff. So you're not letting mm. people know you may you want to people know, but not everybody, and you're trying to you know, answer due diligence queries and dig out yeah. documents and trying to kind of, you know, again, without having staff wondering why you, you know, looking at all this stuff that you, you know isn't what you're normally doing. Yeah. Um, so it's just it's just really full on. And then, you know, people like me are bombarding you with, you know, 
contracts of various different lengths and questions and, and all sorts. So, um, so it's, it's a really, really involved process. And, and yeah, emotionally can be very, very draining. Um, and especially, you know, again, because, you know, I'd say in almost every case I've worked on, you know, the seller does care about what's going to happen to the people and the staff going forward. And so you're also, that you know, there's this deep down concern about, well, you know, the last thing you, you, know, you, you want for your team is for this person to come in, take over the company and suddenly start firing people or, you know, or changing things and making it, you know, into a horrible place to work. So that's a real, it's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it will happen. You will have mm. these feelings and, and, a, and, and this sort of emotional toll on you. Yeah. Um, something to be, be aware of. Um, you know, I, I kind of almost, always have this little, you know, what I've just said to you, I'll, I'll say to the client early on in the piece, explain to them how the process is going to work and mm. you know, how we'll try and help them manage, you know, not getting too overloaded with it, but it's a fact of life, it is going to be, be happening. But then, you know, mm. um, you know, once a deal is done, <laughs> actually, I was going to mention this later on, in, 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 we talked about some examples, but um, I remember doing a deal back in the UK and um, it was a real, this one took a long time to get over the line. Yeah. Um, Reasons. And then we finally got it done. And I remember I spoke to the client like about three days later, and um, I just said, "How you know? How, how are you? How's it going?" And he said, "Oh, just, you know, I've just been um, just been and played the best round of golf of my life. You know, kind of <laughs> just uh, the world's been lifted off my shoulders. I was swinging freely and just you know, and also I guess not stuck in a you know conference room with me for the twelve hours at a time. And, um, yeah, I just suddenly felt I guess you know, felt the relief of getting it done and getting it done to a buyer that he really believed in." And, um, and just yeah, totally freed him up. So. Oh wow! That, that's, yeah, I don't know if that was a permanent change in his golf game or just a very <laughs> uh, fix. So, uh. so he, he, he didn't become world champion or anything like the, the, the following no, year no, or anything no. like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent stuff. And actually, that's an area that um, you don't often think of. Actually, is that that whole emotional um, uh, weight that's that's because because it's not just the um, the being in the conference room. Uh, getting your documentation in place and and, and having your business pick through it's, it's it's sometimes it's your lifetime's work that's been looked through with a fine tooth comb. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, it's it, that's exactly right. And also, look, you know, <laughs> there can be um, it's a very stressful process anyway. And moments when people don't necessarily behave as they should do, mm. you know, a bit in my face angry it is stuff you know both from and the seller side and um, and again you know i remember you know, in, in, a, in a meeting once we were very close to getting a deal done and there was some sort of hold up and um and at one point the client on the other side oh see it, 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 there was some sort of approval that we were waiting on from, from a kind of regulator and yeah. it was just taking a bit longer than we'd take and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I think everyone's already been sitting around for like a day waiting for this thing to come so we can press the button on the deal. And the, um, <laughs> the client on, on the other side at one point kind of basically looked at me, pointed at me and said, this is your fault. Like, totally, you know, kind of absolute utter nonsense. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then um, a bit later on, you know, I was chatting to, to my client, we're going to break out or whatever. And he said, God, that was a bit flown. I said, mate, it's fine, you know. I, I guarantee you, when this deal's done, he's going to have his arm around me and tell me how I'm his best mate. And, and, it <laughs> yeah, and three days yeah. later, that's exactly what happened. You know? Yeah. Uh, but the other thing, you know, another thing I want to touch on in terms of, I guess, something to be to be aware of mm-hmm. is just, um, and this is true for, for, for you know, if you're a company looking to raise capital for selling your yeah. businesses, but who is your investor? Who is your buyer? Yeah. What are they bringing to the table in terms of, you know? Certainly on the you know, startups and cap rates and so on, you know, you want someone who's going to give you the cash, but also, you know, are you expecting them to give you, you know, guidance or, you know, intros to contacts or, 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 mm. or, or what have you? And, um, and doing your due diligence here is, 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 it's as important for you to do your diligence on them as, as yeah. to you. So, you know, if they're a serial investor, speak to some of their other companies that they're invested in, you know, what, mm. what have they been like? But are they, you know, a, a supportive investor? Are they going to be someone who's just going to, you know, throw teacups around and, 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 you know, sort of make unreasonable demands? Are they going to be, you know, sort of, you know, see a short-term picture or a long-term picture? Just, just what are they like to deal with? Yeah. Again, you know, when you're at the term sheet, say, you're at the, at the sort of negotiation stage, everyone's much more on their best behavior. Mm. You know, the wedding hasn't happened yet, and then it's only, you know, uh, 
marriage is, is done in your, your year, a few years and that things start to kind of come out. <laughs> and also, um, another thing I think um, which is quite important in this present situation is just, um, especially if you're going to do a deal with a, where you're going to get money in tranches, mm-hmm. got to be very careful around that. Um, I actually um, was, I was trying to that earlier, I remember a deal we did um, just around the time of the GFC. Um, I think we signed it maybe a few months before it all, you know, before Lehman Brothers and it all really went pear-shaped. Yeah. And this was an investment that was going to be made into the two or three tranches. There were, there were a couple of milestones to hit. Get, you know, part A done, get, a, you know, get the first customer and then you get the next lot and whatever the milestones were. And basically, the, um, you know, so the, so the deal's done, first tranche comes in and then later on, you know, the world has changed. Suddenly, this fund hasn't got the money to invest or needs to deploy mm. somewhere else. And that was that. And, um, you know, that if my poor client, little startup, you know, kind of really had to kind of very, didn't have the money to go off to sue people to try and, you know, force contracts. Um, so that was, that was um, you know, something that, that you know, should be considered. Oh, that, that would be absolutely heartbreaking because, like you say, you, 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 find, you finally achieved the investment. You can put in place the plans that you need to make for the growth of your startup and then all of a sudden it, it's cut short almost. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and she's probably already committed to, you know, sort of spend half of that money already. So um, mm. because, you know, you assume once you've got the sign, the, the money's going yeah. not the same. And yeah. I, I also, we, you know, had a, um, an M&A deal um, with something kind of similar happened where the, the buyers basically we committed to do the deal and, um, you know, so deal signed on, on say day one and then yeah. the money is meant to be on day day 14 yeah 14 comes and goes and so does day 28 and so does day 56 and so on mm. and um and it just you know it turned out that sort of for whatever reason you know this particular buyer had a um um did weren't in anything like the strong position that they were and they were relying on a whole bunch of stuff and you know that they that was going to other deals that were going to happen to give them the cash to do this deal and um, mm. Very, very, very messy. Um, oh. um, I mean, uh, eventually the first deal just had to say it's off, you know, yeah. and put the business back up for sale. And, and thankfully, second deal came along. Um, I think it was a slightly reduced price because the mm. market started to turn a little bit, but um, but we got the sale off. And um, and so yeah, that was you know again due diligence. Yeah, dealing with sort of again everyone, any, anyone can claim to have. Have you know pots of money, but let's mm. let's them to their proof. You know, yeah, absolutely. I, think, I mean, I think, I think in this particular case, pro, you know, sometimes the, de- the determined person can you know, maintain a facade or hide their true position. So you know, there's a limit to what you can do. But the more the more you are kind of taking care, you know, to protect your own side, the better. Yeah. Absolutely. So, re- re- I mean, I mean, that must be absolutely heartbreaking. And um, and the real, so the real moral of the story is, is don't be afraid to ask, don't be afraid to check, and don't be afraid to um, to cross reference as a, as, as, a, as a as a as a founder. Excellent stuff. Um, just um, need to uh, move on a little bit. Um, uh, one of one of the things that we we were. We had there was different opinions on this actually um, when we was going through our UNSW um, accelerator. Was um, there's a the majority of investors you speak with um, say be planning for your exit even before you you launch your product almost and before you go too far. There was a couple that we actually spoke to that said, well, if you're concentrating on the exit, you're not concentrating on now. What are your thoughts on exit planning for startup founders? I mean, I think. Being aware of the fact that at some point you are going to want to sell your business mm. is, is um, well, at some point you're going to want to stop working, presumably, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and uh, you know disappear into the sunset. So you need to, you know, sort of have, have an, a, a thought about. It's not just exit planning; it's succession planning. It's, it's mm. kind of you know almost disaster recovery that almost that that side of things. But um, look, I think that early stage companies you don't need to get too deep into the woods about what that exit's going to look like. I think just yeah. be aware that there will be one at some will point. Be. And then it's really, I mean, the exit planning sort of early stage could be no more than just simply, okay, we know we're going to need, you know, it's getting those processes and yeah. systems in place that we mentioned earlier. It's like have that kind of internal data or have just be get ready so that, you know, when 
fish comes to shove it, if, if, you know, if, say, an offer comes out of the blue very quickly mm. and something comes to it by you and the time is right, well, you can move quickly because you've already done, done your homework. Yeah. Um, I mean, beyond that, then it's really a question of, of you know, it's, it's as much a kind of looking at your business and looking at the vulnerabilities, if you like. So if you've got a single founder and then a, you know, and a, and a small team, it's like, well, okay, what happens if the founder gets hit yeah. by a bus or gets COVID or whatever? You want? What's that um, sort of business continuity slash disaster recovery sort of situation which is almost you know kind of and the, the, the same sorts of issues will come up um if you turn your mind to those questions as well as a, a more traditional okay we want to sell um you know we want to, you know a buyer's going to come in and take over so what will they need to do how will they yeah. need to, you know, what they need to know to take over this business from, from day one yeah so that, that go, it absolutely goes back to the original points you were making for, very much so to just get your ducks in a row and get them in early. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, but I, I do agree, you know, you don't need to be thinking about um, what you're going to wear on, on uh, your <laughs> you're about to hit the gong to show your, your, your IPO when you're still, mm. you know, pre-revenue or whatever. <laughs> um, let's, um, you know, focus on the, on, the, on the now, have an eye yeah. on the back of your mind. Um, yeah aware of the future as well absolutely maybe just um just touching on you you mentioned ipo um maybe we can just uh, quickly touch upon um the types of exit um the options that are available ipo v acquisition um, and maybe you could just briefly explain what what are the differences for for, for founders yeah i mean so you know with, with an ipo um the company is basically putting its shares uh, making its shares available to be traded on the stock exchange. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and typically, as part of the IPO, it will issue a whole bunch of new shares and raise money for its future plans that way. Mm. Um, so, typically, the you know, well, almost always the same management team will stay in place. So, if you're the founder, you're going to stay in place, and actually, you'll most likely be locked in for a period of time. Um, but you know, you'll continue running the business and. And using the, the money that's coming to, to grow it and, and take yeah. it forward. Um, now, as a publicly traded company, you're going to be subjected to sort of different and you know, generally speaking higher levels of governance and reporting obligations than mm. you would if you were a private company. Just because you know, it's a sort of matter of law and policy that people who invest in companies um, should be protected. Yeah. Uh, Investors should be so that a lot higher reporting and sort of governance there. Um, the on the on the flip side, the kind of trade sale, if you like, can call it that. Um, so again, you own the company now. Instead of putting going on to the stock exchange and remaining on board and maybe setting up any of your shares, but but still being the CEO or the chairman or yeah. whatever, or now selling to to a buyer, you know, I'm buying your company off you now. In lots of cases, there, you know, the, the, the seller does still, the founder does still stay on, stay mm. involved for a period of time. Especially if there's an earnout, they, they want yeah. to keep some some element of, of oversight. Um, but not always, you know. Maybe that you're just going to sell now, and you've got a management team, and they'll just run it, and, and you'll disappear off into the sunset. The yeah, that kind of trade sale is well. I mean, that that's a proper exit, I guess. You know, for yeah, you, you as an owner, as opposed to an IPO. Um, and you know, usually speaking, um, trade sale is a, is a, is a quicker process. Mm. Um, it's, 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 uh, it doesn't take as long. It isn't as expensive, um, but it is, a, it is a sort of a, a different beast to an IPO. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that's what that's wonderful. Thank you for um, for explaining that. That's that's brilliant. Um, time's really marching on. Um, just want to talk about. I mean, you've talked about a couple of uh, of, of cases. Um, previously, without breaching obviously client confidentiality, maybe you could talk listeners through uh, a few deals that you've negotiated that have given you the most satisfaction from all were out of the ordinary. <laughs> I mean, look, in some ways, the reason I, I, I enjoy what I do is because every, every deal, when you get it done, gives you that little mm. satisfaction of getting you know getting your client to where, where they want it to be. I mean, the um, well, the, you know, the reason I'm a, a commercial lawyer, not a litigator, is because. Mm. Litigation is, 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 you know, too, it's a sort of zero-sum game, if you like. You know, someone's going to win or someone's going to not win. Whereas, yeah, yeah, you know, we're trying to, you know, we may negotiate very hard on the contractual terms and everything, but ultimately, you know, you know 
especially where a client, you know, this, let's say there's an exit and the client's going to be involved so because it's an earn out, or if it's a cap raise, well, obviously then the, you know, sort of both parties are going to work together after the money's raised. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got to still, you know, almost, you know, kind of work hard, play hard, but play fair because the clients, you know, so the, the parties have to have a relationship going forward. Um, that's going to be workable. So, so, um, and that's why I enjoy doing, you know, it's, it's getting us to a position that everyone's happy and everyone thinks it's fair and correct and, um, and then gives them a, a solid base to, to, to work going forward. But in terms of um, fun deals, I mean, I guess I've mentioned a few already. One of the biggest deals I did um, way, way, way back when was um, so the firm I was at was involved. Um, we acted for the original creators of um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Oh yeah, and that was um, yeah that that sort of got eventually got bought out by um, a new person. This is around sort of the mid two thousands. Mm. Um, that was a fun deal, just because of the subject matter and and um, and just you know getting getting a, I guess a feel for just how big this idea that three guys had over a few yeah. drinks in a in a pub they became. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was, you know, that was like nine figures, that deal. It was mm-hmm. just ast- astonishing and fun to work with. I mean, look, all those kind of media topics are usually you are interesting characters involved. I bet there are. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was a good one. Yeah, and then, but then, you know, like I, I recently, the last sort of month or so, um, did a deal for a client. It was another cap raise. And that was great because it was, you know, like it wasn't particularly anything out of the ordinary in terms of, of, you know, legal issues, if you like. Yeah, um, it was a you know, kind of a, a trade investor investing in the client's business, um, but it was transformational for my client. You know, it's now going to give him a springboard to go on to bigger and greater things, mm. and um, and it was great. And you know, and, and my client wasn't. You know, his you know, legal documentation isn't his strong point, but we you know, kind of, I think, we did it all in about ten days. That was oh, wow. some pretty detailed, you know, like a brand new shareholders agreement and investment mm. documents, security documents, and, and you know, and various other bits and pieces. And it was just, um, it was just we rewarding to kind of, um, yeah, sort of see just how it was going to change what this guy's business plan had you know, been for for this year to what it's going to now be. Um, so um, yeah, that, that was that was good. And just you know, it's always nice to kind of just. Um, uh, you know, get something done on time, on budget, and, and with a happy client. So that was that was pretty good. Absolutely. Um, but look, yeah, as I say, you know, I just enjoy getting these deals. So I think it's um, it's very, very um, gratifying. Um, yeah, just you know, just sort of. Um, but it's it, often because you, especially you know, you'll be on a journey with a client. Mm. So I, I'm lucky. I've got clients I've you know had for for many many years. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've got one client that. Was a client in the UK, and then when they moved to us, set up in Australia, they, they mm. kind of searched out where I was and got me to help them with that. And um, it's just great to be on the journey with them, yeah, and you know, and, and see how they go and help the client's experience. You know, yeah, up the highs and sometimes the lows, and just and just you know, yeah, you know, I'm not. You know, law is about personal connections and else, and, and that's what I really enjoy. Yeah, it must be hugely satisfying just watching that growth and, and going on that journey. And I think I think that really epitomizes your approach and the thing the thing I liked when we first met um, at LinkedIn Local actually. And um, is, is 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 you enjoy that journey part of um, of uh, the relationship with the clients. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant stuff. So um, we're just um, we're just running rapidly out of time. Um, uh, Right, we're in the area of COVID nineteen. Hopefully, the, lock, the lockdown will start to be um, reduced in the next few weeks. But how has that affected the business of law, um, as well as business overall? In your opinion, well, I mean, we're pretty lucky because you know, always you know, have an office, um, but also have the ability to work from home. And I've been sort of you know doing that. I guess even pre-COVID, in a, in a typical week, I might be in the office for you know sort of sixty percent of the time and forty percent of the time working from home. So already having you know cloud-based systems and, and you know, sort of all the technology at home, good, and you know just just all that infrastructure that one needs um, mm. meant that for us it was actually a pretty seamless 
thing to be able to do, um, thankfully. So, yeah. um, you know, I, mean, I still do pop into the office sort of mainly if I need to connect like, particular files or if I actually just want to desperately get out of the house. <laughs> which is, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully no one will begrudge me that. Um, so, um, so it, look, it, it's, it's not been um, too bad. Um, the other thing I'd say, I guess, is that um, I think um, the first probably two or three weeks from when it, we, you know, kind of really, you know, somebody's going into, into lockdown, not much was happening. I think there's just a lot of paralysis and um, yeah, um, no one really knowing what was going to happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think now, you know, we're, we're you know, sort of second half of April. Um, yeah, it looks like. Um, it's not going to be Mad Max, you know. We're not going to be roasting babies and whatever you're in the world. Let's <laughs> hope not. Let's so, hope not. So, um, so you know, there's going to be a a, a you know a, a new normal, whatever that may be. So suddenly, in the last two weeks, I've just found clients now kind of coming out of the shell and now actually being more proactive, saying, "Okay, we need to look at, uh, yeah. you know, how has this changed our plans? What do we need to do? You know, some clients are, you know, we're going to." Yeah, we'll, we'll looking to raise capital later on the year. You know, trying mm. to bring that forward or trying to trying to restructure their their, their plans now to, to make their capital last longer. Yeah, um, you know, got clients. You know, looking at you know, a few clients who you know, let's say they've got a subtenant and they now need to look at their rents and work out well, what what does that mean for their subtenant mm. with all the various different things that the state and federal governments are offering in terms of you know sort of assistance. Um, so it's um. Yeah, it's just suddenly got gotten you know, certainly yeah. much busier than it was um, you know a, a month ago. Yeah. Um, and then you know it's funny like suddenly now every lawyer, um, every law firm is sending out you know, an article about force majeure and frustration, and uh, and suddenly these clauses that you know were, you know, were just considered oh that's just you know, boilerplate goes in the back, no one really yeah. focused on it, and now suddenly being looked at because you know suddenly it's important. Yeah. Um, you know, often you get you, you kind of have this. You know, I've had this conversation far too many times where clients they look, you know, thanks for this contract, it's too long. Can you just cut it out? And you kind of want to say, well, which clause do you want to take out? Because they're, they're kind of all in there for a reason. Yeah. And you know, unfortunately, it's almost a classic. It kind of gets glossed over because no one really, really, you know, none of us ever, you know, really think this is all going to happen. So suddenly now, well, it's important. You know, what yeah. does your clause say? What what does that mean? And that's, yeah, yeah, certainly, um, as I say, there have been, yeah, I don't know, 500 articles about, about this in the, <laughs> in the last few weeks. And, uh, and, and yeah, certainly it will be a clause that we much more heavily negotiate. Well, well I mean, it, it yeah. is, you know, for example, we, we already had a, um, I had a client and we were looking at, um, my client's looking to kind of have a supplier come in and provide certain services um, at a certain location. Yeah. And now, you know, one of the issues was, well, if they can't get in because there's a lockdown and they're not allowed, you know, people aren't allowed to be out and about, mm. you know, then we still have to pay them or is that, sort of, is that risk on them? And, you know, and that's a, yeah, an issue that we wouldn't have, you know, yeah. from you know, three months ago. So, uh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. In, in, interesting changes. I, I would think there'll be quite a, few, a real possible change of uh, force majeure terms in the future because, let's say, these pandemics may happen, almost certainly going to happen in the future. And, um, yeah, I think there will be a, a few people stung by uh, what's happened recently. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just because um, we've rapidly run out of time, um, your time outside of law, what would you love doing in your spare time, if you have any, of course? <laughs> um. Uh, uh, you know, I um, love being outdoors when we can. I've got uh, two kids, um, mm. ten, and, and uh, so we like to get out. And you know, the usual thing is going to the beach with the kids and have a bit of a splash around and so on. Um, yeah. Uh, I um, recently my, my kind of a uh, lockdown experience has been more for some cooking. So uh, I, I I love to cook and and uh, I guess it's been a, been a, been a, a an excuse to just down some of the other cookbooks and just start working through interesting recipes and uh, that, that helps me uh, yeah uh, keeps me sane um, probably not that good for my waistline but uh, but no I've enjoyed doing that and then yeah you know I love to you know, yeah outdoor stuff you know, playing golf playing tennis um, yeah play soccer but getting a bit bit a bit old <laughs> <I think. laughs> there comes a time yeah, when you yeah. sorry 
there, there, there comes a time when you have to hang up your boots. For me, it was playing for Central Coast Hammers in a friendly game down at Terrible and um, and decided to break four, four ribs, diving to save um, an absolute sitter of a goal, which I saved in the end. And that was the, real, the realisation. I thought, no more am I doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I yeah. I, I realise I'm not a young man anymore. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Um, uh, tell us more about your vision for Scope Legal and how important uh, the Central Coast is for, for, for that vision. Well, look, yeah, so we, we, we moved up to the coast five years ago mm. and you know, kind of uh, here for good, I guess. Um, and you know, when I first set up um, for... I had an office in Sydney in CBD and I was commuting every day um, because yeah. I thought as, as a kind of corporate commercial lawyer doing the kind of the kind of work I do, I need to be in, in the city. But really after about a year, I realized I didn't need to do that and be based wherever. So I was based from, from the Central Coast. Um, and I think, and in those five years, we've seen a lot more people coming in to the region, um, lots more business, lots more, you know, so lots of growth. I think that's only going to change. Uh, sorry, yeah. only going to continue, and so yeah, and that's going to bring lots of opportunity, lots you know, sort of uh, you know, new all, all kinds of business. Mm. And uh, and you know, one thing I, I did notice was that kind of in the region there are lots of great law firms mm. um, doing great work in the areas that the law firms on the coast have traditionally done work. So that's going to be you know. Um, Real estate conveyancing, you know, yeah. family, um, sort of, kind of, sort of, what in the UK you'd call a high street practice, if you like, you know, some some commercial stuff, um, but certainly um, only a very limited number of people who are doing you know, big company M and A or cap mm. places or private equity deals and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, my, my vision for the firm is that we're going to keep on doing what we're doing, um, but give the coast, give uh, the whole region. I guess an alternative. You don't need to go into Sydney to get this kind of deal done. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, that's changed in the law since I started is that there's lots more people like me who worked in big practices and are now running their own boutiques and they've got the same experience. You know, again, yeah. you know, my experience is still my experience. I've still done you know sort of nine figure deals and hostile takeovers and IPOs. And the fact that I'm now doing it from um, you know a boutique in, on the Central Coast doesn't mm. mean I've, I've gotten all that experience. So, so the vision is really to try and become you know, sort of a, a, a preeminent Central Coast commercial law firm, yeah. um, helping helping local businesses, you know, sort of establish themselves and grow and thrive, and and uh, have a, a an alternative to having to go into you know, sort of the big Sydney firms or yeah. the Boston firms. Um, just keep it local. Excellent stuff. And um, just in finalising, uh, before we have to finish, um, what would be the one piece of advice you would give um, uh, startup founders and business owners, um, specifically from a, a, a deal or um, capital raising perspective? I think it's the best general advice. I think it's just that whole being organised yeah. and understanding what it you know what is the core of your business. If, if you're a you know, if, let's say you're, you know, you're a software company and you've got people subscribing to your software. Well, mm. Then, okay, then what you're going to be selling, or, or what investors will be investing into it, is you know, all these, you know, this, this business of selling software contracts. So make sure mm. you've got a process in place. You've got good T's and C's anyway. You know, so the actual terms of your software sort of offering, and then let's make sure that they are actually documented. That they, you know, people are signing up to them, whether that's electronically or not. And just be organised. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and also all the other things that you need to have in your data room. So you know, make sure you've got your IP regularised and documented. Make sure you've got your employment contracts all sorted. Yeah. Because that's all good practice generally. It's not mm. just about eye on a deal. Um, and then I guess the one point for specific deals, I'd say, is just do your due diligence as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that it can be a rush to you know sort of. Any cash is good cash. Yeah. And take it and go, and, and that's not the case. Um, Absolutely. You know, you know, there, there will no doubt be cases where a company would be better off not taking a particular investor's money and waiting because um, yeah, it turned out it was the wrong fit and the wrong person. And, yeah. And, uh, and that caused more problems later on. 
I think there's the one real big piece of takeaway um, from that is do your due diligence as well. Don't be so excited about the thought of money that you forget your own due processes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that's, that's fantastic. We've run out of time. Um, Chaz, uh, I know where to find you, but where can our listeners find out more about Scope Legal and yourself and how can they contact you? Come to our website, um, yep. which is scopelegal.co. That's uh, S-C-O-P-E-L-E-G-A-L. .co, um, it's a contact form there, um, and you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, so Chaz Deer, C-H-A-Z-D-H-E-E-R, um, you know, reach out, connect, love to say hello, always happy to meet new people, um, I guess these days have a, a virtual coffee and a virtual chat, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, we get hold of us. That's fantastic. Well, that was absolutely an amazing conversation. I got personally got huge amounts out of that. Chaz, thank you very much for uh, for being our guest and um, and for taking the time to spend with our listeners. Absolutely, and I thoroughly enjoyed this. And uh, yeah, we'll talk talk again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Chaz.